So Toby. So Darian. You know, I've been thinking about this podcast as we get to sort of the end of our second season, an arbitrary end to our second <laughs> season. Um, and I was thinking about kind of the, the, the overall theme of what we're covering about how uh, technology influences life, life influences technology, um, and all of that. And I was thinking, you know, we've been leaving something out about um, life. Really? Let's, kind of been an elephant in the room. Let's hear it. Um, one of the major things we've been missing in terms of our conversation about life has been death. Oh, I see what you did there. Hi, this is Darian Bates. And this is Dr. Tobias Wilson Bates. And this is The Stories We Tell Our Robots. It's the podcast about how we make our technology. And how our technology makes us. A few weeks ago, uh, I ended up speaking to uh, a friend. His name is Andrew Adelsberger, um, who is performing in a work uh, in Washington, D.C., um, opening actually this Saturday called The Emperor of Atlantis. Um, and actually, the full title is The Emperor of Atlantis or Death Abdicates. And um, it's a really interesting opera that uh, was composed and written by two people who were uh, interned at um, Theresienstadt, which is a, a prison camp, a German prison camp during World War II. They were interned in 1943. Oh, wow. And they wrote this opera. Yeah, yeah. And they wrote this opera um, essentially about death. It's a really interesting narrative exploration of death and actually how technology has affected death. And so I, I, I thought, you know, what better way to kind of take us into a discussion of death than with the uh, under the auspices of opera, which is is its own form. It's kind of this art form that is sort of this over the top dramatic it's, um, form. It's much more gestural. It's why when they talk about like Star Wars being like a space opera. Right, right, right. It's like, it's really big, it's really broad, and there's a weird way in which our superhero films are kind of operatic. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're, not, they're not kind of nuanced discussions, they're actually really broad, emotive performances. So I kind of wanted to use, to talk about this opera today um, as being this really interesting exploration of death. The composer was Victor Ullman, and the libretto, librettist was uh, Peter Kinn. And do you, do you want to um, explain just, what a librettist is real quick? Sure. So uh, an opera has two two kind of key things to it. It has the the score or the music, and that's what's written by the composer. And then uh, the libretto is essentially the story or the text. Um, um, when we think about our great opera composers, um, Mozart, or then like kind of the grand opera, the Italian operas of like Puccini or something, or Wagner, if you're looking for the German ones, who are I, we really are talking about the composer there, but uh, but in this case we're talking about both kind of the composer and the librettist. Um, but what really kind of sh struck me about this is is this idea of this this story about death um, and death's relationship with kind of this rise of kind of industrialized warfare, which I think reaches never before seen levels in World War II. Um, a mechanized death in a way that was both sort of battlefield death, but also obviously they're in a prison camp. Rather than me continuing to explain kind of all of this, I thought um, what really, really interesting was actually sit down with the director of the show, uh, Nick Olcott, um, who also actually um, translated it. Oh, wow. And also with the, um, the actor who plays death, um, Andrew Adelsberger. Sounds good. So I'm here today with uh, Nick Olcott and Andrew... Excuse me, Andrew Adelsberger. <laughs> that is, uh, <laughs> people with better diction than me could uh, pr uh, pronounce that yeah, better. We all use his name as a vocal warm-up. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, so uh, so let me introduce you. Are uh, Nick Olcott is the stage director uh, for Emperor of Atlantis. It's a uh, an opera that will be opening this um, actually this weekend, Saturday the sixteenth and Sunday the seventeenth of June, um, at the Atlas Art Center in Washington D.C. And um, 
And uh, Nick, first of all, translated the libretto, if I'm correct. Um, the original um, opera, or the original libretto, is by Ullman, right? No, it, Ullman, Victor Ullman is the composer. Oh, okay. The libretto is by a poet and artist named Peter Keen, K-I-E-N. Unfortunately, largely forgotten today for his literary works, his visual artworks are still somewhat known. All right. Well, so why are we here talking today? And meanwhile, I, I will, I, while I have not introduced Andrew specifically for what his role is, I'm kind of like holding off on that just for a second because it will make more sense if we talk a little bit about why are we talking about the Emperor of Atlantis on a tech podcast. <laughs> so, um, so I think I want to start off by just talking a little bit about the history of this um, opera because I think that'll maybe help us kind of ground ourselves in this. The circumstances in which they actually produced this opera, I think, is the first hint at what we're going to be talking about today. So if you can maybe talk just a little bit about the history of this opera. Yes. Uh, both Victor Ullman and Peter Keen were prominent uh, members of the arts and intelligentsia community in Prague in, 19, in the 1930s. The of course, in those days, uh, the upper class in Prague spoke German, not Czech. Victor Oldman was the son of Jews who had converted to Christianity. His father was a military uh, officer and had converted to Christianity for career purposes. Uh, Peter, Peter Keen was a practicing Jew. It being Prague after the... Um, Nazi takeover of Prague, they both ended up in the Theresienstadt concentration camp, or what in Czech it's called Theresien, uh, which was the Nazis' model concentration camp. They put all the artists and writers and singers and musicians there. They appointed a governing board of Jews to, quote, run the uh, institution and they instituted the um, they instituted the what they called the Jewish Free Time Committee, which was to organize art events. And indeed, there was an orchestra, there was a chorus, there were several works of art that were created in this concentration camp. Um, the, it's one of the darkest chapters of the history of the Red Cross that the Nazis actually brought the Red Cross in to see this, co this concentration camp. Um, the Red Cross said, oh, what a nice place, and left. And promptly most of the people were taken off to Buchenwald or Auschwitz. Oh. So, so when you describe this as a model concentration camp, it was in fact more of like a, not so much a model as in this is the way we are going to do all our future concentration camps, so much as this as, is a representation, of, yes. an external representation of what we want as yes. our scene. Is exactly. They, the Nazis even produced a propaganda film called Eine Stadt für die Juden, a city for the Jews, uh, which, which pictured all of these wonderful things going on, including the other opera that came out of this camp, which is called Brundaba. It's actually a children's opera, which was actually produced, and the Nazis filmed sections of it in performance, mm -hmm. and as soon as this film was done, shipped the children all off to the gas chambers. Oh my gosh. So while they were showing this propaganda film about their model concentration camp, the children appearing in it were already dead. Well, so this, so Emperor of Atlantis, on the other hand, did not get a production. It did not get produced, I think partly because of the success of Brundabar. I don't know what the Nazis thought that artists would be writing about in a concentration camp, but both Brundabar, which is a children's opera, and Emperor of Atlantis are about dictators. Not a big surprise that it would be on artists' minds. Um, <laughs> Bring what you know, I think. A bossy bee that takes over, and the other animals have to gang together to defeat the bee who's running the society. And this is about a dictator. Brundabar had been performed. I think the Nazis were already worried. The SS came to a run-through of the opera, to a rehearsal, canceled the opera, and all the creators went off to the camps. Mm. There was in the camp... A librarian, I love librarians, they're the best people in the world, they save humanity, 
who collected every scrap of paper he could have from the camp. And after the war, uh, he, he had the fragments of this piece, which was still in rehearsal, it was still in development, it was not completed, but he had it in the 1970s, um, a conductor undertook a reconstruction of it, and it was first performed in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. So, um, unlike, the, unlike the dictatorial B from Brundabar, <laughs> Um, this actually maybe cuts a little bit too, this cut a little bit too close for uh, maybe the Nazi regime's taste. And so um, maybe you can explain just a little bit about um, the plot, and that will actually lead us to introducing uh, Andrew Adelsberger as well, as far as in one of the, uh, if not the titular role, since he's not the emperor of Atlantis, at least a key role in this part. Well, he does get the subtitle of the opera. <laughs> the subtitle of the opera, there were actually two on the various pieces of manuscript. One is The Emperor of Atlantis or Death's Refusal. The one I like even better is The Emperor of Atlantis or Death Resigns. <laughs> Der Tod dunked up, which is the same verb for when the, the Kaiser, at the end of World War I, uh, resigned or abdicated. It was um, dunked up. So it's really death resigns. And the plot is that there is a dictator, a very Hitler-like, um, uh, claiming to be the sole power and the sole source of truth in the nation. And he declares war, that the country is under war from the outside, and he um, will wage war. Now, death initially is all with that program. I mean, mm -hmm. this is, after all, his métier. Mm -hmm. But this war is different from other wars, and machines are doing the killing. Mm -hmm. And death initially becomes just tired and disheartened mm -hmm. because his job has been taken away. War has become a mechanized and um, automatic process. It's not mm -hmm. human beings and animals killing other human beings and animals. It's machines killing people. Mm -hmm. And then the emperor declares a second war after the war against the... Um, outside is has been won, he declares an internal war that it, the, in the German it's wonderful I find no way to translate it well but it's the, the war of alle gegen alle, all <laughs> against, against all. everyone, yeah. yeah, everyone against everyone and he turns the country in, inward on itself mm. and um, at that point Death says no, and what do you do Andrew? Yes. Well, I resign <laughs> <laughs> in the first Part of of the of death's story in this in this opera, he and we should just in case listeners uh, don't recognize you play the role of death of death, like right. the Grim Reaper, death, yes, a, an embodiment of death. Uh, death has a has an aria reminiscing about the the good old days of war, talking about uh, how he was with Attila the Hun and the Mongol hordes and. He was with uh, Hannibal and the elephants, even with Napoleon. He rode with Napoleon out and back, and it was wonderful. And those were the those were the good old days, the halcyon days of death being but, what it once was. Yes, but now it's 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 all machines, mm -hmm. uh, motorized tanks and airplanes whizzing mm -hmm. above, and. Uh, Death is now a fact. It is, comes from a factory. Mm -hmm. One of the things I would really love to know, um, I think, Nick, from your perspective, is why did this piece need to be done now? Like, what brought this? What certainly is an interesting historical piece, but why does it kind of call well, to you? Unfortunately, we're seeing worldwide a re-embracing of the fascism that we thought in the 1940s we'd learned. It was a bad idea, folks. It really mm -hmm. was a bad idea. And now we see worldwide people embracing it again. And it's very puzzling to me. What's interesting about the piece to me philosophically is it ends with a hymn in praise of death, hmm. which it's hard to get your head around. People in a concentration camp, even a model concentration camp, singing in praise of death. And I really had to struggle with that until I realized that the last verse of the hymn in 
phrase of death is actually, let us respect our fellow men and learn to understand their life's joy and their life's pain. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was an epiphany for me to realize, I think what the authors were saying, they were facing their own deaths. They were smart people. They knew they weren't getting out of this alive. Mm-hmm. That they weren't going to be, you know, the Nazis weren't going to pay them to create works of art there for <laughs> years to come. Mm-hmm. But instead of just dealing with their own deaths, they took a much broader view and said, wait a minute, none of us is getting out of this alive. Mm-hmm. What are we doing in the meantime? Mm-hmm. And knowing that death awaits us all, what do we make of the years that we have? Mm-hmm. And what do we use those years for? And what is leading a good life that can lead to a good death? Mm-hmm. And in fact, death has a beautiful aria, which Andrew sings. Well, last night he had me in tears oh. as he sang <laughs> Where he says, you know, death is not the disease. Death cures the disease. Hmm. Death is not the pain. Death stops the pain. To look at death as a natural part of life and part of life to be embraced, not to be feared. And that that makes the light, the living that takes place before the dying, that much richer. Yeah. Or not just to be to be feared or or um, but also to be controlled. The death. That's part of death's argument throughout the, through the pieces. You can't control death. Death is. Well, and in, in a very philosophical or political philosophical sense, what happens in the play is once death abdicates, no one dies. Well, the emperor suddenly has no tools to use against the people anymore. If he can't threaten death mm-hmm. to them, what power does he hold anymore? Mm-hmm. Which, by extension, if you think about it, if we didn't fear our own deaths, would people be able to control us? Mm-hmm. If we truly said, well, death is going to come one way or another, I need to look at what's happening now in every moment of my life, evaluate it and judge it by the standards of this moment, not because it might, what I do now might lead to my death or my living, yeah. but what is the value of what I do now? Yeah. Well, I'm fascinated by this concept of control over death and versus death refusing to be controlled. And talk a little bit about that, Andrew, in terms of kind of like so the character of death as you play him, as you see him in this in this work. I mean, not a not a ghostly, you know. Uh, although I I will be kind of dressed as the the ghost of Christmas past, mm-hmm. uh, or the you know the ghost of Christmas future. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. that's the one. Um, the, the, what I like about this production is that the director has asked that it's just he's just a person mm-hmm. who has this responsibility. This, this responsibility. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's not a a, a, a a very dark look at it. It's mm-hmm. even in his last stories, as they call me, Death the Gardener. Mm-hmm. It's not uh, this idea of yeah. w- winging sickles around and uh, you know lopping off heads. Mm-hmm. It's a uh, it's a it's a peace uh, an end a peaceful end. Mm-hmm. Well, and it strikes me that there's two sides of kind of when we start looking at death and kind of an kind of an industrial framework. It feels like we try to control both ends of it. Like there's all this talk right now, especially in like you see this you kind of see this every generation of of new powerful people. There's always this pursuit of eternal life, mm-hmm. and I think you see now in this in kind of the latest iteration of the tech you know, kind of the Silicon Valley world of people trying to pursue eternal life, whether it's through through sublimating their conscience in technology or just creating essentially, um, you know, kind of these, these, these extreme kind of health, you know, pursuits or whatever, that there's this desire to both control death in terms of eternal life and then also control death in terms of industrializing the practice of death at the same time. And you end up in this uh, control framework. Right, and I mean, there's even a part in the in the in the story where the emperor, when when people stop dying, the emperor says, "Well, it's, it was my idea. I've given them eternal life." Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, people are begging to die. I mean, they've they've been shot all these times. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't imagine just right. waiting, just you know, hanging, waiting to die. I can't, mm-hmm. I can't imagine. Um, 
So it's just the, 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 the necessity of it. Yeah. It's interesting, the idea that it's, that pain is beyond control, but death, is, death can be controlled, or death, death can be dispensed with. It's not, you, all the rest of the life still goes about it. You still, you deal with trauma and all those other things, but death has decided to hang up the sickle for a while. Yeah. Death just says, I'm going to stop working. Mm-hmm. And a very interesting aspect of the play that I wrestled with a lot is death's sort of counterpoint in this play is the figure of Harlequin, the figure from the Commedia dell'arte. Hmm. And you think, well, is he supposed to embody life? I mean, why would you choose Harlequin? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I think there's a good precedent for it in another worker, another German opera, Ariadne of Naxos by Richard Strauss, in that Ariadne, the classical heroine who has been deserted by Theseus, begs for death, and Harlequin comes to her hmm. and tells her she has to live. So I think in, in Keane and Ullman's mind, this figure of Harlequin symbolizing the will to life mm-hmm. with death being the will to death. And of course, in Freudian psychology, those two are the motivating mm-hmm. forces of our lives. And in this piece, they start out as antagonists, mm-hmm. and they end up as allies. Harlequin and death. Harlequin and death. Hmm. Well, it's interesting, because the other thing about Harlequin, right, is that, if, if I'm understanding correctly, and I have to admit that my Commedia dell'arte knowledge is somewhat limited, so I'm going to go to the, 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 the historical figure of the jester more than I go mm-hmm. to the, uh, the Commedia dell'arte trope, but um, the idea of kind of the jester as being kind of a truth-teller and you know, and and the idea of those two characters, there's something profoundly true about death. Yeah, and that's why I cast Andrew because I wanted death to be a warm figure mm-hmm. whom you like, you know. And the the customer said, "Well, are we going to paint a skull on his face?" And I said, "No, no, no. I want Andrew's face mm-hmm. because I want death to have a face that we immediately respond to with joy upon seeing it." Mm-hmm. And then can listen to what he has to say that death is and that death offers us. Mm-hmm. And then Harlequin, who is really like all of us, just wants to live, have sex, have fun, mm-hmm. dance, and drink, um, at first thinks that death is going to be his enemy in that, mm-hmm. but realizes that death is his ally. That it's, I mean, Kafka, who is, of course, a contemporary and a compatriot of the creators of this put it best, the meaning of life is that it ends. Mm -hmm. That Harlequin realizes that everything he does is meaningless if there isn't death at the end of it. Mm -hmm. But death being there gives everything he does meaning. Do you think we've become more separate from death? So my, my mother, for example, grew up on a farm and surrounded... When you grow up on a farm and you're surrounded by death all the time, you're surrounded by yeah. birth, you're surrounded by death, it's just kind of a part of you. Are we less connected to death oh, now? No doubt about it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even... I, I happen to have studied this for another production I was working on, but it was a whole movement in 19th century America to move cemeteries to the edge of town. They used to be in the center of town around the church. I mean, that's the classic English and New England setup, is that the church was there, and it was surrounded by graves. Mm-hmm. And it became a 19th century thing to move them out to the edge of town. And now, most places, cemeteries are kind of hard to find. Mm-hmm. And they're separate. They're put off. We like to keep death in another part of our minds. And then, of course, we have this huge industry to keep death at bay in so many ways, mm-hmm. with plastic surgery to, um, you know, pharmaceuticals, pharmaceuticals, pharmaceuticals um, life support systems that take people far beyond what any of us would call living. And it's because we just don't like to think about it. Yeah. And it's, some, it's something we don't like to acknowledge is going to happen to us. 
I love the idea of, of, of your, your, the casting decision around Andrew. So those who haven't seen Andrew perform, first of all, they should absolutely see you perform. <laughs> Second of all, it's, you, you have such a, a kind of a, a generous good humor on stage. You, um, I think the, uh, I did not see the production. My, my wife ended up seeing the production of, uh, you played the, what the, the Major General oh. in uh, <laughs> recent production of Pirates of Penzance. It's just, with kind of a, a, a lightly comic air at all times. And well, I, I, Andrew was a student of mine at the university. And he played Snug the Joiner, who plays the lion in the play within a play in Midsummer Night's Dream. And I'll always remember that. It was the most lovable lion ever. <laughs> Made me want to do The Wizard of Oz next. <laughs> you'd be a solid, uh, you'd be a solid cowardly lion in The Wizard of Oz. Um, but so talk a little bit about kind of like entering a character like Death. That's, it's, it feels like it's a, it's, a, it's a conflicted character to kind of go into, it's particularly one that seems to be put out with kind of life as, I, I, with death as it kind yeah, of exists. I, I could see it that way. Uh, I think the, the hard part for me was, um, you know, when you're playing a concept that's, that is made into a human. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and not, and not that we're, not that death, not, I'm not human. Right. I'm, I'm death. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but, it, it, it's uh, it, the challenge for me was to bring that that life and that uh, bring that life to death, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, or and, bring death to life, and and to find uh, exactly, <laughs> and to find uh, to find the humor in uh, in everything, mm-hmm. even in such a such a serious subject matter at such a seemingly dangerous time to be. Yeah. I understand exactly why we're doing this now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I won't get into it that any further, but uh, uh, no, but I think but I think it, trying to inhabit a character that is not inherently a, a full fully well, rounded character. It's like what Nick was saying with the face. I mean, you think of the Grim Reaper as right. you know, faceless. He has his hood on, and you don't see you know what is under that 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 hood. Mm-hmm. Well, you're going to see it's, you know hopefully that that I want to bring that part of, of humanity that you know, death is a part of everyone's humanity right. so if they can identify with death as a, as a human being with compassion, with empathy mm-hmm. uh, I, I, it's that much more compelling than just having a, a ghost right, no, I, and I think about these, these two men in this concentration camp, as you said being, being very aware of the, uh, the situation in which they're living and creating and producing, and it it feels like they are, you know, I can I feel like I can speak very conceptually about well industrialized death of the concentration camp, but to be that kind of grist in the middle of that mill that's in the process of sort of grinding you, and at the same time being able to sort of say, let's let's create a, a semi comic opera. I mean, it's it's a it's a fairly humorous. It, it at, least, has, at least from the from the my understanding at least from what's written about it, it feels like it's it's got tongue in cheek kind of uh, well it's got it's got <laughs> grim gallows humor to it mm-hmm. and the sheer irony of it um, you know just the, the dark humor of people are begging to die please let us right, die right um, in fact I love the and it's translated almost literally when the um, the uh, it's reported that thousands are struggling with life, mm-hmm. craving death. You know, <laughs> we always would say the opposite. Yep. Um, struggling for life, not struggling with life. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's um, very interesting. The, uh, or the author, Victor Ullman, also wrote, he wrote about 20 essays. They, they probably on the same typewriter that Keen used to write this libretto. Very moving essays about what it means to create, because people, I'm sure, were saying, why are we creating art mm-hmm. here in the uh, concentration camp? And he said he didn't want to be, in the, one of these essays, which I cannot ever read without crying, but he says, we didn't want to be like the ancient Jews in exile who hung up their... Um, harps in the trees and refused to sing because they were lamenting their fates. 
We wanted to sing a song so that coming generations would know that our will to create art was as strong as our will to life. Hmm. And he said, I could be writing about the fact that we don't have a piano that really works, that we don't have enough music paper. I could be writing about that, but that's not what future generations will want to know. Hmm. Future generations will want to know what we were thinking. And that's why he felt they had to create art. So it, it, he was right. I mean, this piece of work is now living on after him and um, is given us something to... We still feel a part of his life every time we perform. Mm -hmm. And on a technological side, it's also very interesting that he had to use what musicians were available. Mm -hmm. So it's one of the few operas ever written that it has a part for banjo. <laughs> yeah, it's not it's not a it's not a classic uh, opera instrument. No. He clearly had like four violinists, a cellist, a clarinetist, and a banjo player. Okay, that's an orchestra. Nice, nice. Well, the, I feel like the banjo adds a certain something. It's like the uh, yeah. The, so um, I know we're we're actually speaking in case people are listening. We're actually we're actually here in the dressing room prior to uh, rehearsal, heading into the final week. So. I'll, Respect your time, but um, um, and but that's also kind of what's going on in the background that's frequently. <laughs> um, but I would love to kind of throw this question to you. So, um, you know, when we do this podcast, one of the things we like to throw out there is kind of this apocalypse or utopia. We get to the end of this, and one of the things we, you know, we kind of identify these things that are sort of happening and these trends that are sort of happening in society. And I want to propose this one for for this conversation, which is I, to your earlier point about we've kind of moved. We've, we've kind of put death to the side and we've, we've increasingly trying to control death in this sort of, in our industry, in our, whether it's a health industry or whether it's, whether it's just simply trying to keep it out of sight, out of mind and our in, in, intent to sort of control death and to hide, hide it uh, from us. It seems that we've been doing that maybe for as long as we were no longer living with livestock. <laughs> um, and like once we didn't have to confront that in quite such a visceral way and it seems like we're just, where we continue to kind of pursue that direction. On a scale of one to 10, one being, is that leading us towards kind of an apocalyptic future where, where we either try to overcome death in some sort of perverse ways or, or, we, or we create a kind of industrialized death or alternatively, we, in the pursuit of this, we somehow transcend these, you know, something that has limited us previously. Where, where would you put, um, Kind of this this kind of movement. I'm of the mindset that we're headed toward apocalypse. <laughs> just, just, just blanket. We, uh, you, you know, we can talk about um, making progress in uh, quality of life, um, but I I don't see a utopia coming out of this. Mm -hmm. I, I really don't. Um, whether it be from just the world being overpopulated, mm -hmm. you know, it's not. And as we said, it's not taking. People aren't living longer. It's taking them longer to die because mm -hmm. what kind of quality of life is it if you, if you, if you virtually have none? Right. And uh, you know we've gone from this, you know, speaking in terms of let's go just speaking in terms of warfare. Mm -hmm. You go from when you you looked the man in the in the, in the eye mm -hmm. and you and you were right there when you killed him, and now you can right. you can kill five hundred people from three miles away. Well, it's. From so across you know, the world. Right? You don't have to see anybody. Right. Well, one of the shocking things that I didn't realize about warfare, pre-Napoleonic warfare, was the degree to which not that many people, relatively speaking, died during any particular battle. It was actually fairly uncommon for people to die. Most of the time, your entire purpose of the battle was to scare them, was to get people to mm -hmm. run away, to break their spirit, to get them to run off. And battles were hundreds of deaths. Like yeah. that was generally um, most battles. There was, you know, Waterloo was terrible, and, <laughs> but most kind of didn't end up in that space. Um, they were usually, like, as you said, very kind of. There were there were contests of will, mm -hmm. and that's um, yeah, but well, um, bleak. But <laughs> how about you, Nick? Where would you? Uh, how... Oh, I'm sort of a Nelly Forbush. I always <laughs> think. Yeah, things uh, looks like what what are the lines from uh, South Pacific? They say the human race is falling on its face, um, but every whippoorwill is selling me a bill and telling me it just ain't so. 
I've got to help. I, I've got to believe that we're going to see things turn around mm-hmm. eventually. I do think it's an extremely unhealthy uh, development in our society that we so deny the existence of death. I mean, I speak very personally. My mother died of, lung, of breast cancer when I was 15, and it was handled in the typical American way. I never saw her dead. I never saw her body. I never saw her again. But just last year, a very good friend of mine died of breast cancer, and I was with her as she died. And I held her hand as she died, and I helped carry her body into the ambulance that took her to the uh, morgue. And I wish I'd had that for my mother. Mm -hmm. I feel so connected now with Catherine, my friend who died. With my mother, she just disappeared. Mm-hmm. But Catherine, I saw her through to the end. Mm-hmm. And that's very important. And I think it makes us more human mm-hmm. if we do that. And if we just warehouse people who are old and stick them away until they're dead and pay lots of money to keep them alive, but don't actually experience the process of dying and try to keep it sanitized and at bay and away from us, I think we don't we don't live a full life ourselves and we can be so afraid of death that we'll do stupid and dangerous yeah. things yeah. to keep from dying. Yeah. It's interesting, you're right. It does feel like we have to kind of our our um our jesters and our <laughs> our our death sort of have to live side by side of it. Our Harlequins, we can, we can only enjoy life to the fullest extent with we, uh, we kind of make peace with death. Or at least we, we, we let him in. Mm-hmm. Put a seat for him at the table. So to answer your question, my answer would be we certainly are staring towards apocalypse, but I'm hoping a U-turn is possible. I like that. <laughs> I like that. Change my mind. There you go. <laughs> Well, thank you both so much. I know it's the last week. I was really generous of giving some time, so really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Great. Wow, that was heavy. Um, well, I, I do feel like we got to maybe a, a somewhat optimistic place <laughs> at the end of it. Yeah, one would hope. One would hope. Boy, it's, it's awfully hard to talk about anything related to the Holocaust. Um, right. Right. It it always feels like yeah. you're you're always sort of on skates like either either missing far too low in in talking about it in trivial ways or missing far too high in talking about it in ways that are so hyperbolic that it's hard to kind of hold on to meaning. Right. No, I think that's true and and that's it makes it really difficult to use it as a a reference point, but I also think it's um, I think even when you just think about the Holocaust in historic terms, the degree to which the Holocaust was kind of a central part, kind of traumatic engine that changed a lot of what our society became afterwards. Mm-hmm. So even if we don't think about it, or even if we're kind of careful about how we use it as um, in an analogical framework in terms of whether we compare things to the Holocaust, just simply talking about the Holocaust as being a part of this kind of transformative shift from one way uh, in which we viewed um, kind of an earlier time period, kind of pre... If you think of both world wars as being essentially just an extended um, evolution to war and the Holocaust being this kind of crystallization of almost taking kind of mechanized death off the battlefield and just kind of applying it in kind of this this bureaucratic setting. Um, I think it's I think it's an interesting way of seeing kind of an extreme example of kind of where it felt like kind of the death machines were going. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's worth saying, you know, like uh, we we talk about technology a bit here, and I, I I feel like there was a lot of implicit stuff that that maybe we could make explicit briefly before we we hop off. Um, to, to what degree is this about technology insofar as like we engage with these things, do you think? Well, I think I think if we think about technology in a kind of a broader concept of kind of the structural frameworks through which we apply kind of our our 
practices. So like if you think about bureaucracy as a technology, mm -hmm. if you think about um, these kinds of structural hierarchies as technologies, mm -hmm. um, I think the whole thing is about technology. I mean, I think that so I think that technology is is really applicable. Yeah. Um, if you think about it in terms of just the machine gun, it's it's more loosely related. Yeah, and maybe one thing uh, we could talk about very briefly, and, and this is something I'm interested in, is that um, equally hard, if not if not harder, in some in some kind of abstract ways, because it's so uh, impossible to to really think about it in more than abstract terms, is the techniques that people have used throughout history to to imagine death. Hmm. That there there's a specific figure that that we might think of as the grim reaper although he's not necessarily called that in this play that that shows up in the play um and that this is a very very old technique at least we might say if not a technology then a technique for kind of handling the idea of death is to personify it uh and mm -hmm. and this goes back so far as i can tell in the middle east there's mott or or Baal in the greek tradition there's like you know the river Styx and charon the, the kind of the the ferryman who takes you into to you know hades and this kind of stuff and in the celtic tradition latin america tradition day of the dead and etc 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 in in the catholic tradition it's um michael uh, is that right i i i believe mm -hmm. that's right um et cetera, et cetera. There's the, uh, almost as long as people have been around, like, there has been personifications of death. And it's mm -hmm. interesting to think about in, in the way that the, the play forecasts um, how we don't seem to do that so much now, that, that that particular technique for approaching death seems to have given way to others. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the tech side, what are our tech death technologies right now, if that is a thing? Right. Or what, are to what techniques do we use to think about it? I do wonder whether there's, in a, in a weird way, we have, like, post-World War II, society kind of did kill death. Like, death, death no longer seems to operate with this kind of, kind of, in this sort of personified embodiment. Now it feels like death is is kind of a much more kind of, vague and as as nick was saying kind of almost like an isolated thing that yes it sort of happens but we don't talk about it mm -hmm. or when we do talk about it we it's like we talk about these really abstract terms like we we, we hear about death all the time right yeah yeah and, and often in in statistical terms I, this is the direction i was thinking a little bit that if we have lost a kind of intimate personification of death it seems like what we've replaced it with is is massive statistics and it it, right. it doesn't seem incidental at all that that's cued after the holocaust where you know the the numbers that came out of that were were so staggering as to almost right. destroy the integrity of the concept and i think about uh you know i i, I work with a lot of students who who it, it, it becomes part of why their projects exist. So if I have a student who's working on cholera, then it's like, how many people mm -hmm. die? If I have a student who's working on automated cars, like, well, how many people die? You know, if I have a student who's, right. who's working on, you know, uh, glaucoma or dementia or whatever, it, often one of the things that's available is statistics of mm -hmm. how many people are affected by this thing, how many people die, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And that doesn't, there's nothing intimate about it. It's almost like a kind of cudgel. Right. Right. You're right. It's really interesting. It's like we have these, these kinds of, it's almost like there, it's the other side of sort of, you know, profit metrics, you know, like kind of market sizing analyses, right, mm -hmm. um, that you would do in any kind of startup venture. Um, it's interesting because it actually, I, I would hazard a guess that actually many of the people in your classes, many of the, you know, the students in your classes probably haven't had that intimate of a relationship with death. Um, I think one of the things that I think in general is I don't know that that many people, I think we, I think we tend to be far more distanced with death partially because we just don't, in, our, you know, the U S mortality rates in particular aren't particularly high. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's like you can actually go a fairly lengthy period of time in your life without having somebody close to you die. Yeah. You know, I mean, tra tragedies aside, like most people don't encounter it very often. Um, and, you know, I think, I don't think I remember like the first personal awareness of somebody 
kind of in the family dying, I think until I was like 13, which means that they're, they're, I'm sure other people did before then, but I wasn't, I didn't go to a funeral before the age of 13. Mm -hmm. um, so you think about that. So we're fairly actually distanced from it. Um, and as a result, I don't know that we, I don't know that we really have much of a, a framework in which to understand it or to kind of encounter it. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think the framework that people get instead is like sort of the dissemination of information. You know, how many people right. died because of the tsunami? How many people died yeah. because of this war? How many people died because of this, uh, you know, refugee crisis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know, before they ever, right. you know, sort of scare quotes, meet death in person. Right. Well, and then you end up with something like, um, you know, that was it the Harvard study that was done about Puerto Rico, where death in that case is like they weren't even talking about specific deaths. They were they were projecting or they were modeling out how many people likely died. Right. Right. We're, we're not even talking about a specific person's death. We're talking about statistical deaths. And that's not to say that that, that many people didn't die, but it's like because of the difficulty in identifying kind of causal relationships and things like that. Like it's like, this is how many we believe did die. But if you couldn't, but if you can't do that kind of volume metrics, you don't like death didn't happen. It's like, it's almost like if it's, it's like statistic or it didn't happen. Kind of <laughs> <for deaths. laughs> Whew, man. Well, I, I, this just seems like an apocalypse or apocalypse moment. Right. <laughs> Well, I think it's 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 interesting. I mean, you know, we you know, Nick and Andrew kind of weighed in on this. And so I guess it's I you know, we should we should do so too, although I think they they I feel like they hit it on the head pretty well. Mm -hmm. Um I think the last thing I would throw in is this idea of what our relationship with death does seem to be. It's much more in this like we've used technology to process kind of our new relationship to death. Mm -hmm. Like one place where you see all the conversations about death happening or all the conversations you generally hear about death that aren't related to how many people died in some sort of tragedy are um, like different techno technology startups that are trying to either end death or change the dynamic around death. So, I mean, there's all these sort of like, like some startup, like all these sort of ventures out there that, that are kind of nibbling around the edges of death. Mm -hmm. um, there, there, you know, there's startups that um, I think from the, from the, largely um, superficial level are just like managing your social media account after death. I mean, how many people do we know who have died and you still see like their social media birthdays coming up and things like <laughs> that because they're yeah. still like kind of on Facebook, right? Mm -hmm. um, so there's people who kind of manage your social, you either take it down or there's even, I think, something out there um, where where it can like process the way that you tweeted and continue to kind of like tweet on the news in your voice. Oh, um, going forward feels very zombie like yeah um but then there's other things you know like there's kind of the you know trying to was it is it is it bostrom who is who is a part of this or is kind of interested in this the idea of kind of sublimating your consciousness into technology by creating kind of these neural networks that rep that kind of can consume your personality yeah bostrom's into um, it too but ray kurzweil is probably the bigger name uh, uh who, who right, believes right I think in the next 20 to 50 years, we'll be able to upload our consciousness into machines. Right, right. And so that's another way in which we're kind of engaging with it. Um, and then I think that, you know, the, the, the kind of the third way is this, this idea of trying to transcend it from, from health perspective by, um, you know, like by whether you're, you know, you're trying to kind of turn off these aging genes or things like that. There's all these kind of, um, various levels of legitimacy to the science, but, you know, various place, ways in which people are trying to, whether it's using stem cells or trying to figure out what causes aging and things like that to trying to kind of live forever, which is not a new impulse, right? We've no. kind of had this fountain of youth um, desire for probably as, as, as long as people have figured out that they are going to die. I've tried to figure out a way to stop that one. Mm -hmm. So that's so, like yeah, a, it's, it's, that's like a five. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, so no, I'm just I'm just framing that. If what we're really kind of uh, adjudicating here is like, if in fact like death has fundamentally changed in the way that our culture is currently understanding it, and that's been heavily technologically driven, like technology has really shifted our view of of death and our relationship to it. How is that? You know, what are the ramifications of that, and how is that gonna, um, you know, kind of kind of play out? Um, yeah, I, 
I'm I'm fairly I'm fairly ambivalent about it. I don't really see a whole lot of upside to being um so distant from death. You know, I feel like I've had enough relationship with it that it's it doesn't feel like something that you can run from and the more you try to run from it the more kind of um pathological kind of your your you know, your relationship to it becomes and your relationship to your life becomes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm going to give it a uh I'm going to give it a four because I do think we can maybe come up with some great medicine in the process. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's where I come up with it. I don't know if that was totally uh, um, legible as far as a a thought there, but. Boy, I mean, it's so hard to even think about these terms. I I guess I give it a two for now, you know, (laughs) like. It sometimes feels to me like the the twentieth, the rest of the twentieth and the twenty first century have been so much about trying to wrap our brains around the Holocaust, um, mm-hmm. and what that means. But it seems like in in attempting to do that and in turning in in trying to come to terms with this statistic or this set of statistics about war and bureaucratic genocide, like we've turned so much into statistics. It seems mm-hmm. it seems like it's a dangerous path to me, um, right? But I I do hold out hope. This is why this is not a one that that something like an opera is really meaningful, you know? Mm-hmm. That 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 art is meaningful and that it can can let you channel something, you know, back through a figure uh, in, yep. in a way that people can understand it outside of statistics. So uh, people should probably go to the Lord of Atlantis. <laughs> it'd be a tre- it'd be a bit of a trek for you from from Atlanta, but uh, to anybody who's in this area, listen to the podcast. Uh, it is opening Saturday, June sixteenth, playing June seventeenth, and then the following Saturday, the twenty third of June, and Sunday, the twenty fourth of June. Um, yeah, if you go to it, uh, uh, shoot us a uh, shoot us a message on our on our website or or Facebook or however you like to communicate with us uh, somewhat randomly. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, yeah, rate us on, um, on, on your podcast listening channel of choice. And let us know what you think. Whew. Well, I look forward to hearing about it. Yes. So we're going to take a, uh, a couple weeks, and we're going to come in um, in the beginning of July with uh, the beginning of season three. Yeah, um, because it felt like, you know, why not? Uh, why not? Why not? If we can't call it season three, if we don't take a couple weeks off, plus <laughs> we're going to be coming up with some. Uh, I think we have some 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 great subjects coming up. So uh, look forward to uh, chatting again in early July. Yeah, me too. Awesome. All right. Well, enjoy your your brief reprieve from me, um, <laughs> <laughs> at least as far as podcasts go. And we will talk uh, talk soon. It's awesome. That sounds great. All right. Love you. Love you too, man. Bye. Bye.